One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is DTC Growth Hacking with Rob McGray. Brought to you by Field Test. Advertising Simplified. This is DTC Growth Hacking, presented by Field Test. I'm your host, Rob McGray, and this is a podcast dedicated to the direct-to-consumer ecosystem and what I guess we could call the new language of marketing. Today, I'm super excited. I've got a friend um, and colleague on. His name is Yohei Nakajima. Um, he is uh, is a venture capitalist. I guess it's safe to call you that, Johan. Yep. Yeah. And uh, a little bit of background. He has been a a strong and passionate presence in the uh, in the startup in startup land, specifically in in our time together in the LA tech scene. Um, he's been involved with companies like TechStars, Scrum Ventures, and now he's got his own firm called Untapped Capital. Um, and I would describe Johan as a trusted friend. And ally in the uh, the world of startups is, is that, that that feels right? Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Let's let's take let's take a step just a step back to uh, to talk a little bit. I just want to set context for us. Um, we met what in in about 2015. Yeah, I think and, it was 2015 or 14. Yeah, you were part of TechStars. We were we were involved with the Disney Accelerator. That's which right. Was, which was cool. And uh, I, can you just can you just kind of get us like caught up to how, how do you how do you go from wherever you start to suddenly being involved in something like the Disney Accelerator? That was that was a fun program. Yeah, I was I was active in the LA startup ecosystem. I mean, just to even rewind a little bit. Like I grew up around um, entrepreneurship. Uh, my dad was at Microsoft in the early you know eighties. Really, I, you know, I did not know that. Uh, wow. We okay. talked about this. So he was he was at Microsoft in the early eighties until two thousand. He left to start Ignition. Uh, he was on the Ignition Partners founding team oh, wow. um, that came out of Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, six months in, after vetting some companies, felt like he could do it better. So he actually had Ignition fund his company um, and left Ignition to start that and then had an exit. So that was that was my elementary and middle school. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. I, so I, okay, actually, had that, so, I actually had that bug. So, so, after you're, college, so you're, like, you're like second generation, you know, I, I am. in this. Wow. Wow. I am a second generation, yes. Um, so I already had kind of that bug in me. So right after college, I tried to work on my own startup and really made every mistake you can make. Like I tried to do everything myself. I mean, I could list all the mistakes. The biggest mistake by far was not surrounding myself with other founders and mentors who have gone through it. Looking back, there was many mistakes I made that anybody who had been around this space for a little bit could have pointed out to me. And it was after I wound that kind of down and I, I actually became a social media consultant for bars and restaurants, which was a really fun gig in my 20, you know, early 20s. Um, I went to my first startup weekend, which was my first exposure to the startup ecosystem. And I just became obsessed. I was up all night you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we launched a startup from scratch, pitched it. And I got obsessed with this idea of a community of founders supporting each other, which was new for LA at the time. There was one co-working space, maybe one event a week. Um, so I got really deep into that space. And uh, I was, you know, working at the most well-known co-working space, Coloft at the time, running a lot of my own meetups and events. 
and a Cody who, you know, um, started working out of Coloft and I was in, uh, uh and, um, Okay, this, this is in Santa Monica, right? This, this is in Santa Monica. Place. Okay, yeah. I, I, okay, okay. I think now I'm thinking we probably met when you were there, and maybe I just hadn't placed it because I spent some time there. Okay. Oh, it's possible then. Yeah. Yeah, I was running all the events out of Coloft. Um, I was running what you know it was called Coloft Academy, so it was a school mm-hmm. for founders. And uh, Cody started working out of there, and I uh, you know had a little coffee with him and as you know, the new member and he was with Techstars working with a media company. He couldn't tell me which one, but I kind of guessed which one just from the hints he dropped. Um, so I invited him to uh, coffee every single week um, at Intelligentsia on Abbot Kinney on Fridays at 9 a.m. Um, until eventually he said, why don't you, uh, why don't you help me with this? Oh, so that's, that's how I, that's how I ended up on the Disney accelerator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, now I'm remembering, I, I went to a startup weekend at Coloft and I wasn't necessarily a judge. I came in and I, I, I just kind of, I don't know, gave, gave the troops a rah, rah talk. And, uh, you know, my talk was, which was very short was, um, essentially about like taking something bad and turning into something good. And I, I told an experience of being fired from, from the company I worked for, like on Christmas and, uh, and, and being so mad that I went out and started another company within six months and then a year later sold it. And the whole, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, I guess the driving force of my story was to take your, your, your frustration and anger and turn it into something positive and that no one else could, could really control your destiny um, except for you, which I don't know if I believe, but at the time I was very excited about this idea. I, I kind of feel like I remember that. I must have been there because I was at every startup weekend at Coloft. That's, yeah. that's funny. We must, we totally must have crossed <laughs> yeah. paths then. Um, and I just didn't place it. And that was, I, I remember I even, I think, and, and you, yeah, I, I, uh, I ended up booking out rooms there um, from time to time when I was on that side of town. Like you could book out a conference room. Like yep. it was great. Like it yeah, was, I was it, there I mean, every day. Yeah. For, it was a cool for, place. Yeah. All right. So, so you, you get involved with the Disney accelerator, you, you go on, you get involved with these funds and, and now boom, you have your own fund. Like this is, this is where you are now. You yeah. Have, you have, you, you, you are the man, you have the thing. I'm, I'm working on it. It's a, yeah. uh, it's, it's a, it's a new journey, but uh, I feel prepared for it. And it's a, it's an exciting one. Everything you imagined. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I have no, no complaints really. Um, you know, these days, especially, you know, looking at the world of venture capital, um, I'm seeing what I saw kind of in the startup, like the lean startup movement about 10 years ago when everybody was just, it was all about sharing how best to do startups and the number of content instructors, classes just blew up for founders. And I think I saw the same thing in the last probably two years in the world of venture capital, this concept of, you know, what I would, what I would call the lean venture capital movement. It's gotten cheaper to start a fund. People are posting tips on how to fundraise. Um, and there's so much accelerators and content out there for new emerging managers. Um, I feel like I was, at least compared to some other people who run funds and you know their surprises and, and all the stuff they had to do, I feel like I was very well prepared. I feel like people passed on knowledge on what to expect in running a venture fund to me, now more so than um, even a few years ago, um, yeah. a manager might have experienced. Yeah, one one of the one of the reasons I was I was so excited to have you on was that I I think there might be um, you know a lack of, of of clarity around how these funds work, and I don't know if everyone truly understands the 
you know, the, I guess I, I, you know, kind of the, you know, the way that fund managers actually have to hustle to get money in the fund. And it's a whole other side of the business that, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've primarily been on the startup side, which is like you, you go to these folks and you're asking them for money or asking for help or advisement, mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. You don't really see the other side of their world, which is they're, they're out actually aggressively raising all the time. And, and that is a, a, a type of marketing in its own right, you know, this, this, this VC hustle. And so, you know, that was that I, I really think it's important for people to understand, um, again, if you don't know how this works, that, that you know, f- people who are, are running funds have to be marketers in their, in their own way and are constantly doing what entrepreneurs do, which is, you know, network, talk about stuff, get people excited, bring in money. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, venture funds are, they are stewards of money, right? They um, allocate capital on behalf of other people. Um, So every venture fund, you know, looking back in history, raised from other places. I think today, right, if you think about, you know, traditional venture funds, they were larger funds and they were probably raising from uh, larger checks from few very large institutional investors. So if you think about a hundred million dollar fund, they might be pulling in $20 million from pension funds and foundations. What we're seeing today, the rise of micro VCs, the 10, $15 million funds, um, they're raising from high net worth individuals and family offices um, because these larger institutions can cut, you know, five, $10 million checks at the smallest. So they can't invest in a fund that's really small. So interestingly, it's the smaller funds have a lot more, LP, you know, limited partners, investors. So a lot of funds, my size, $10 million, 15 have, 50, 100, in some cases, 250 investors investing in their funds. Wow. That's a lot. of, And so that's a lot of networking. I, I mean, let's just take that number for a minute and right. say a $15 million fund that has, you know, around 200, 200 plus members or partners, I guess that would be, we would be limited partner. What's so the- te- technically, if you have a fund that is more than $10 million, you can only have up to 100 LPAs. Okay. Which creates a unique dynamic of needing yeah. a minimum amount of dollars per LP. Uh, if you have less than, if, it's, if the fund is less than 10 million, you can have up to 250 limited partners. And this is an odd SEC rule, but I just brought that up because you said a $50 million yeah, fund yeah. with 200 LPs, which is uniquely not possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't, and I, I don't, I don't know these. I'm, I'm sure there's <laughs> yeah, lots of rules. <laughs> there are. Oh yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of rules. Yeah. I didn't even, and that's something I didn't even consider just like, you know, understanding the way this has to work legally um, yep. is, is a job in itself. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, it's it's fascinating movement. I mean, this whole idea, right? If you're raising a $10 million fund and you can have only 100 LPs, then you need every limited partner to invest $100,000 on average. Yeah. But it's not many people can invest $100,000. And then there's this whole discussion of, is this leaving, is, this, is investing in venture capital a wealth building opportunity and is that now limited to only the wealthy? So then you have um, unique organizations. Um, I think um, you know backstage capital with Arlen. She she did a republic campaign where she did a crowdfunding campaign on republic for the management company of our venture fund, which really gets, just gets into the weed of venture capital, but trying to give everybody access to opportunities in venture capital. So it's, it's it's a fascinating market right now. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And and can can we talk a little bit about just the the journey of what it's like to put a fund together? Because uh, 
that's that's interesting to me like I, so you decide you want to you want to have a fund like what what do you, how do you go about you know creating it and how does that work yeah i mean i think with anything you you know you start by just doing research what goes into starting a fund and as as i you know mentioned earlier there's a lot more information out there today so that's where i started um i think in that process i realized hey this this seems like um something i could do today Right? So it becomes a timing issue. Um, you know, at one point, I knew I wanted to do a fund. The question was when. Um, and there was a moment I realized, hey, I could, I could do it now. At that point, um, you know, I did what um, we did at Techstars, which is what I call mentor madness. So I said, I'm going to go talk to 100 people about this kind of idea for a venture fund. I have this idea around it. Um, and during those 100 meetings, I'm sure I'll figure out how to, how to talk about it better. And that's exactly what happened. I went out. I had a thesis. I as, as I talked about it, probably around the 30 or 40th time, it started kind of hardening into something that I felt comfortable with. By the end of the 100, me- 100 meetings, I had a pretty good story. So I turned that into a deck, got feedback from all of my friends. And then you're just kind of off to the races, seeing um, if you can find people who want to uh, um, who want to come along on the journey with you. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 I, and I know we've talked a little bit about before and what I would call your meeting madness in its own right. Um, you know, you, you, if you could, you know, just talk a little bit about, you know, the idea of, of networking and, uh, what I would consider it's, I, I mean, the way I describe it is it's kind of like an odds game where the more people you talk to, the better the chances are that, that something's going to, you know, land for you. And I don't know if people realize like, you know, how many, how many meetings, how many phone calls, how many coffees that, that this really takes to, to get off the ground? Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, for, for fundraising for a fund, uh, you're, you're, you know, you have p- prospective LPs, people who might become LPs, and you have those meetings. And then you have connectors, which are not prospective LPs, but you never know where an introduction might come from. So that's how I kind of thought about, you know, the number, the type of people I was meeting. And, and you know, I, it, was, it was hundreds of meetings on, on both sides, right? Um, I've had well over a thousand meetings up to this point since starting my fund around you know, getting it going. And I think there's, um, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of people because it, it, it does feel a little bit salesy at time. You're essentially reaching out to people, asking introductions from your friends so you can ask them for money. So there is definitely a psychological piece to fundraising, which I think is challenging for a lot of managers. Yeah. Um, did you, did, you know, hey, did, did, and I know that you, you did, um, part of your, your raise during COVID, did, did you find that with people all remote that, that it actually helped or did it hinder? I, I mean, I think both, like you can make an argument for both. Um, I think I've adapted quickly to it. Um, I started fundraising the first week of March in 2020. So my fundraising was all kind of COVID. Um, so I didn't have an existing strategy plan. I kind of immediately adapted to, okay, Right. Initially, I thought I was going to go have meetings in Seattle. I realized, hey, you know, if no one can meet in person anyways, I don't have to limit myself to Seattle. I can really meet people anywhere. So for me, I quickly fo- turned my focus to my strongest relationships as opposed to my close, like physically closest relationships because I no longer had to meet people in person. Um, and you know, I'd been remote for five years before all of this happened. So I had kind of had, I think, a leg up in terms of just process and working from home. Yeah. Now I know you're you're a real people person and and you like to be around people. Um, we've talked a little bit in the past just about like your uh, kind of social director duties in life. Um, do, you know, does does working primarily alone 
and I know you have a partner, Jessica, um, at, at untapped, but you know, for the most part, you're, you're kind of, you're by yourself in a lot of ways. Um, is that, is that lonely? Like, do you miss being around a lot of people? Like, um, and, and I, I kind of have a guess of the answer, but, you know, I picture like startup week versus the, the setting that I see you in, which is typically in your home, um, sitting in your office. Yeah. You know, I, I'm happy. I feel like I get a lot of social interaction. Um, weirdly, I think I've adapted just how I think about social interaction, right? I have a lot of really close friends that I've never met in person just because we're comfortable reaching out to each other. Um, I'm also in a very different place in life, right? I have, I have two young kids. Um, I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with them every single day. Um, and, and it makes me really happy, right? And that's, I mean, they, they need my interaction, right? So it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, but on a work, works, um, from a work perspective, I feel like even in this last year, I've made a lot of new friends and I, I'm excited to meet them in person, but, but I don't necessarily feel the need to. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I recently met someone I'd been working with for, you know, six plus months and I met them in person and it was such like a, a wild thing like yeah. that they existed like as an actual person in, in, in three dimensional space. And they had like, you know, feet, <laughs> you know, cause I, I didn't know I'd only seen their face like on video chats. It was just, it was wild, you know, and, and different. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is different, but I think, I mean, I, I have some hesitance, but it's, I mean, it's probably for better or for worse, there are going to be really like people are going to be comfortable with having relationships that are purely virtual and you're not going to need to get together with somebody to like gut check that you're close. Right. The idea of having, I mean, pen pals for, for years has always existed, but that's just become much more convenient and casual. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We now have a lot of, we have a lot of pen pals. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So can I, I want to switch modes just a little bit and I have, I have my own beliefs on this and, and they're, I don't think they're right or wrong. They're just, you know, observations or opinions. Um, but, but I feel, you know, that, that one of the things that, that is a big challenge for, for startups is knowing how to market themselves to the actual, um, investors. And, and I know that you have feelings on it and we've talked a little bit about it in the past, but, um, you know, I tend to wonder if there's a connection with a startup's ability to, to market themselves in general and the confidence that they build with their potential investors that they can actually market to customers, right? Because as everyone loves to use the word like storytelling or the new one, right? It was like narrative. Like these words are thrown around like nobody's business. Like it's in everything. Like what's the story? What's the narrative? Da da da. How do you spin it? And I just wonder, like, you you meet so many companies, and like, what is the first kind of thing that that you're looking for, um, or that you tend to see in these companies when you talk to them? Yeah, I mean, I think what you say is absolutely right, especially today. I mean, if you think about fundraising, you're essentially selling a piece of your company, right? And the investor is the customer. Yeah. Um, And you can reach them through, like with any business, you can reach people through either marketing or sales. Um, But either way, there's a story that needs to be told to convince them to make that decision um, in that process. And I think that's such a fascinating analogy because you, you see both the marketing and sales dynamic in fundraising for a startup. Um, but today, especially as the number of startups grow, 
as the number of investors grow, right? It's it's there is I think the importance of marketing has grown because you're it's it's actually almost unfeasible for you as a founder to go through a list of a thousand VCs, do research on all of them, and like pinpoint exactly who you should be targeting and reach out. You should do that to some extent, but it's also um, you're going to miss some. So what you want to do is make sure that investors are noticing you, um, and that they're going to um, that the ones that um, would want to invest in you see you, and they might reach out because you're seeing more of that. Yeah, where where do where do investors like? And I and I want to get into the way that you approach um, finding your companies, which I think is very unique and exciting. But but like you know, as a as an investor, how or what do you think most investors? How are they? How are they being marketed to? Where are they getting their information? How are they finding out about these companies, um, it, it, specifically around ways that companies could plug into those feeds and make sure they're being seen? So we know like the the tight kind of network, which is, hey, so-and-so called and they want an intro. Can I, will you do the intro? But I, I've always thought that there's another way and maybe more powerful is getting on the radar yourself and making sure that this investor that you want a meeting with even before you ask for the intro, has a good chance of seeing who you are. I, I think that's really important. Um, and and I, I don't think this is actually the question. I think Twitter is a really powerful tool for that. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I've, I've, I know many founders who have, you, know, you can just engage with an investor, right? You follow some investors you look up to and you start commenting and, you, and they see your name a little bit more. When you reach out, you're going to be a familiar name. Um, so you can do that yourself, which is a little bit more like sales. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of founders will leverage their existing network, like asking people to promote you on social, asking people to retweet your news. I think having an updates list, I know I'm jumping around, but having an updates list, email list of like prospective investors and friends is really powerful because when you have news, you can use it as an opportunity to ask them to promote you. Right. So I think good, good companies are leveraging their network. Um, if your network has, you know, has investor followers, then tweeting about your you know new product launch is helpful to you. Um, Product hunt is another good place. I think I know I know founders who will time their product hunt launch with their fundraising because they know that, um, especially for like a Series A level, um, being on product hunt might result in a few associates reaching out to you. Um, but I think the best strategies are the most creative ones. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what that that's my feeling. I don't know if I'm right. You know, I, I meet a lot of a lot of companies and and I get involved. You know. Um, I'm a big believer in, in kind of that play it forward tech stars, you know, mm-hmm. um, value. And, and I find myself spending a lot of time trying to help folks. And I, I always try to lean into something a little bit different because I feel like you can get the same advice like anywhere, but can you get different advice? Um, you know, that might be a little unique. And I've really felt that the ability to market oneself um, and be, you know, specifically to target, Right. To be able to target, to make sure, hey, there's a good chance that this person got my message before they got my before before they found out who I really was. Mm -hmm. And but it's but it's hard. I mean, it is it is hard. And I don't I'm sure there are plenty of uh, resources out there that that people can read, but there's nothing like trying it. Right. And seeing how it works. Um, Do you have any um, do you have any investor heroes that you look up to that that you think are, are really like. Um, kind of living the good life, doing great things and, and really, you know, creating an image of, of what you'd like to someday be yourself? Uh, I mean, 
definitely biased, but I think what Techstars as an organization is one I definitely look up to. And I mean, having worked there, um, yeah. the bias is clear. Um, in addition to just the sheer, I mean, they have 50 programs today, each run by a managing director that runs one three-month program a year, and they're investing in 10 companies. So they're investing in 500 companies a year. It's a scalable model, and a lot of it's you know being paid for by corporates as well, right? in addition to having their own investors. One of the things I think is most powerful about what they've done is they've built a platform and process to invest in very early and risky startups. And they've managed to make, um, they, they hire new people who might have some casual angel investing experience and turn them into institutional investors and surround them with peers who are doing the exact same thing. So a lot of these managing directors, what I saw were angel investors who then were brought into tech stars and they're handed this playbook. But the most powerful thing is all these peers, right? As they invest in companies, one of their companies comes to them and says, hey, we see this, we got this odd term sheet from an investor. Maybe this new new managing director hasn't seen that, but he can just share that term sheet with other 50 other managing directors who can jump in and say, that's odd, here's how we responded to that. Um, and just their ability to create more investors, I think, is, is really powerful for the ecosystem. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. I, 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 was, um, I had a conversation the other day with somebody and I thought, I thought of you. We, we were talking about um, the role of branding versus marketing, right? And the thesis of this individual, and, and, and I know this is one that other people have as well, but 
you know, his, his core thesis was this concept that the brand should sit higher than everything else. So marketing was tactical, but brand like was strategic. And so I wonder when you're looking at these, these very early stage companies, if you're, if, if you're tuned into their brand and tuned into the fact of whether or not they're actually thinking about it, do they know who their customers really are? Or are they just saying like, you know, it's like a Facebook ad buy. It's like people who like, you know, chicken wings between 25 and 30, which is not really a customer. <laughs> you know, those mm-hmm. are just some traits. But I, but like, how how closer uh, close are you are you paying attention to that ability in these in these founders early on? I'd say pretty high. Um, I mean, because we you know we source through outbound, right? We ninety percent of the founders I talk to are ones I reach out to. So, unlike most VCs, my first impression of a founder is not an introduction email. It is me landing on their website. And I, 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 you know, I have bias um, and I'm, I'm not afraid to let it shine through. I want to be aware of my biases, but in the end, I think it's, it's my experience that reflects on my instincts, which is my ability as an investor. So I'd say I am definitely influenced, especially since that is the first impression I have of a company is you can quickly tell from a website how they communicate, who their customers are, how they see the world. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, I probably will miss out on good companies because of that. Um, but every process, you'll miss out on some companies because of the process, and I've, I've, I've accepted that. Yeah. So, so in your world, the um, what I guess we could describe as like the external persona of the company that's being presented to the world is is key for that that first impression that you have. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's direct to consumer, even more so. I think the the question of like, do you need to spend time on your deck design or website design comes up often. Um, I think the answer is it depends. Um, I generally think the more consumer oriented you are, the higher branding and design people expect. Right. Versus say B two B, which is if you're if you're if you're B two B targeting healthcare, then like yeah, let's make sure you're you know you're HIPAA compliant and like check all the boxes first. What what companies are you seeing out there that that are really kind of killing it in that regard? That they've really figured out a great way to present themselves to the world that kind of you know explains who they are rather quickly and who their customers are. I am a big fan of obviously AI. Again, Bias, it's a portfolio of companies of our. Um, they allow anybody to run predictions in minutes without writing code. Really? Okay. So there's a no-code machine learning tool. You can upload an Excel CSV. You can connect it to a Google Sheets or an Airtable, or you can plug it right into your backend database. You pick a column and run predict. It'll run through a couple of models, pick the right one, and then from that point, you can add additional data to get additional predictions. Oh, that's cool. It's a really cool business. But, I mean, machine learning APIs have existed from previously. Like Google Cloud API, I was playing with Google Cloud's machine learning API when I was at Techstars probably seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, I think it was in this last year that we really saw kind of no-code pick up as a trend. Um, and I think obviously AI rode that wave really well. They, they aligned themselves to that initial trend um, and kind of became the no-code machine learning tool, um, which I think was a really smart move for them because there are other tools that do something similar, but they um, just branded themselves really strongly around that um, and rode that wave. Yeah. Does, do, uh, slightly off subject, but... Do you think that companies that leverage a lot of third parties, like, for example, third-party APIs, 
um, and kind of, you know, build the infrastructure to leverage everyone else's tech are still interesting? Absolutely. I think they're more interesting because the tech, the underlying tech that supports this has gotten better. Right. I mean, I mean, speaking of D2C, right? I mean, how many billion dollar companies have been built on top of Shopify at this point? Right. And Shopify is pretty straightforward e-commerce, but as we have, you know, you're seeing, you know, a market marketplace in a box, no code, you know, you can build sophisticated apps right, and dating apps from scratch with an, um, with no code tools. Um, so just like we saw, you know, WordPress create large media companies and Shopify create large e-commerce companies, I would expect, you know, large app software companies to come out of this no code ecosystem over time. Does, does that make... Does that mean you're less afraid of companies that don't have like the uh, the traditional, say, technical co-founder model? Y- yes, yes, and no. I mean, I think there are more business models today where you where technology is not doesn't have to be your strength, mm-hmm. right? Like there, um, that being said, I think the definition of what's needed in a company will also change as well because I think there are even if you're using no code, you still have to make good product decisions. Yeah. Um, and as you hit scale, you might want to move off of some of these platforms. Um, these platforms might have limitations. So you still want kind of the CTO type of person. Um, I think there'll be like a no code, you know, there'll be a no code CTOs, right? The CTOs who don't know how to write code, but like know how all the infrastructure kind of ties into these, plugs into each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've long been a big believer in, in, you know, don't, don't build what you don't need to build and, you know, building something on top of Shopify or, or Google's API, et cetera. I mean, these companies probably aren't going anywhere. So the chances of it getting shut down someday or turned off are are very slim and it can like really help a company accelerate who, who have limited resources. Right. Yep. Um, And, and again, we, you know, and, and this kind of leads into my next question is, you know, a lot of companies especially startups are, are trained to focus on that MVP and getting it out as fast and cheap as possible. So you can get it in the hands of some people, customers and see how it's going to work. And are, do you, are you constantly, is, is MVP um, kind of a, a, a requirement for the companies that, that, that you seek out? I wouldn't say it's a requirement, but most of the investments we make are on market with some traction or some users. I think, um, as you said in today, it's it's pretty cheap to test an idea. Uh, you can build a, for for a lot of software type apps. You can start adding value, you know, start pre- providing that value to your customers with minimal software, and probably for you know thousand dollars these days. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I I worked with this woman, and and her like move was basically, you know, she knew every service that you could use to kind of, I don't want to say cheat but cheat the dev process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she was the type of person and I had never even heard of Airtable. Um, and, and she was like, no, we're going to use this because we don't want to build a database. Yeah. And we're going to use this and we're going to use that. And, you know, if then, then that, and we're going to plug it all together. And then basically like this whole thing, we have very little code of our own. It's just talking to all these different systems and that's how the whole thing works. And that's, that was her move. She could assemble things rather quickly because she was familiar enough with all of these other services. And I thought that's actually quite smart. Um, but then there was the other side of that, which was, you know, 
you know, I, I had a very engineering focused CTO and, you know, their particular way of thinking about things was like, screw that. We want to own it and build it all. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I don't think you, it was almost like you would, you don't need, you wouldn't actually build like an OS or a, or a database. Like, I mean, some people would, right. And, and I know that like some people do and big companies like Google or Facebook, et cetera, want to, they, they end up building their own technology, um, spinning off of something else, et cetera, or building it from scratch. But I really liked the, the kind of scrappiness of this of this mm-hmm. designer I knew who, and her ability, she, she did not know code. She was a designer, but she knew enough of how it worked to your point, could put together the pieces and understood how to leverage them to make her own stuff look so much more robust. Yep. And you can just be so much more efficient. Like I know, I know small businesses who use Zapier to automatically create invoices, right? You take, yeah. you take a form data and you do a, you know, it ties it into a PDF and spits out, you know, like a, not an invoice, but a, you know, a quote and kind of sends it automatically. There's just, there's just so much you can do with, with no code. It's, it's really a great space. Yeah. I'm wondering if, like who's done the analysis to show that, you know, what, what are the cost benefits? Like, cause you start adding up all the prices of these services, they all have like a monthly fee, right. Or yep. monthly subscription or whatever. And if you added all that up, what does it equal? Does it equal like, you know, a quarter of a developer. I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I'm, but I'm sure someone's figured this out, and it's probably quite interesting to look yeah. at those stats. I mean, I use I use Zapier for data entry, right? I when I add a company to my well, if I find an interesting company, I save it to Pocket, which is a bookmarking tool. Zapier picks it up, drops it into my Airtable as an organization. It drops it into my outbound pipeline as new, which is a t- task list for me to review. And then I have another Zap that pings the Crunchbase API, pulls in basic data, and just fills in the spreadsheet for me. So if I'm sitting on Twitter looking at a company, I just save it, to, save a few companies to pocket. And next time I sit down, all the Crunchbase data is already in my spreadsheet. That's smart. So like that's that to me. That's that's what people hire an associate for, which is you know hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Do you do you consider yourself? I do consider you this, but do you consider yourself a technologist? Yes. Yeah, because I, I consider you one. Yeah. Yeah, and and I almost consider you one more than I consider you a a VC. And I just realized that, that when we talk, I always think of you as a technologist first, because you're so excited and and quite knowledgeable about the tech that's out there. Thanks. I mean, I I prefer that, I think. Yeah. I'd rather be a technologist making VC investments. Right, right. (laughs) Well, I think, I think, you know, to, to, to that regard, it would, it would immediately um, kind of, you know, I think quantify this idea that that you could make better investments because you actually understood the way this all worked and you had been hands-on i, I like know? to think so right um it's funny some somebody was asking if we had a formal process for understanding industries and we don't um actually what's funny is as i think about kind of content creation it's something i've been thinking a lot about from a branding of our, of our firm and one of the things i noticed is that our content is actually building right when we built an, we built out our lp portal i live streamed our no code build on twitter um, so our content is not videos, it's right. not images, it's not writing. It's actually so we build stuff in public. So you know, we're, I'm working on an NFT project. We'll all release our own set of NFTs, which help me understand the space. When we before we picked obviously AI, I had built out our whole no code database. So I, I think I like being hands on and, and using products as a way to kind of learn about the industries. Yeah, I, I in, in in our last uh, DTC growth hacking episode, I, I was talking to a, a woodworker and I realized that she hadn't spent a lot of time 
focusing on like brand values and, and, and done all the brand workshop stuff because the brand was essentially her. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that in a lot of ways untapped is, is, you know, um, has a lot of, you know, aspects of, of, of you as it's, you know, as it's co-founder, you know, in, in the way it's presented to the world. Yeah, I think so. Is that intentional? I, 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 yeah, it is. And when actually when Jessica, we, when, you know, I started the fund initially by myself and then Jessica came on and I brought her on, we had, we had such a great kind of process for deciding to work together. I brought her on as an advisor and we spent about six months. Um, we knew that starting a fund was a 20 year plan. Um, so we went through the exercise of like, who are we as individuals? Yeah. Um, and what are our shared values? And we wrote those down and, you know, we haven't codified any, much of it yet. Uh, but we were very intentional about, hey, if you and I work together, what does the brand turn into compared to if I was the one just working on it? And and Jessica's really just such an incredible person when it comes to like talking about story, like that's really her strength. So I've really leaned in on her to kind of help get the story out of Untapped. Yeah, and and you know, and and just to talk about that story because I think it's so powerful. You know, you mentioned earlier um, your approach is a little bit different, but but could you? Could you kind of give us the the, the high level summary of, of the the untapped experience? Like, how does how does it all work? Yeah, so you know, Untapped is a venture capital fund, right? So we're as you said, we're raising money from people and investing in startups. Um, I think what's unique about us is we, you know, some of the things aspects of Untapped was really driven by what we saw in the market. Um, largely, that it seems like too many VCs are looking at the same startups just to put it super simply. Um, and I think it's driven by two things. One, every VC I know relies primarily on referrals as their main source of deal flow. Right? And, and most VCs know each other. And two, um, they spend a lot of time chasing allocations. Right, When there's a hot, shiny deal that's oversubscribed with a top-tier fund and the opportunity to connect with them and try to get allocation arises, most VCs I know will chase that. Hmm. And what happens is then you have all the VCs looking at the same companies. So those founders with, you know, good VC network are raising at, you know, an inflated valuation, which I think is also bad for returns. So we've decided to, you know, um, start a fund that primarily focuses on the founders that other VCs aren't looking at. Because, you know, having done outbound across all textures programs, I know that I can connect with great founders um, who just don't have a strong network and, you know, are, need a little help connecting to the right VCs. But once they have those intros, they can they can go on and build a successful company. So our thesis is around kind of under-networked, unexpected founders. Our unique strategy, right, because these founders are not in our network by definition, is that we primarily source through outbound. So we cold email founders to connect with them. Um, and in order to identify these companies, we look at as many companies as we can. So I personally probably read about a thousand startup descriptions. I'll track, tag, and score 100 to 150 each month, right? Wow. You know, um, and to do that efficiently, we have a custom CRM which is all built on no code. And you know, you mentioned Airtable earlier, but it's it's on Airtable with a lot of Zaps kind of running um, automations. Yeah, that's really cool. I like what, and I hope this word doesn't doesn't offend you in in any way. But there's almost like a homegrown approach to this. It, yeah, it feels pretty. It feels almost grassroots in a way. Like, and, you know, the, the company I described or this woman that I described that I worked with who liked to leverage all of these different tools and make something beautiful out of it actually sounds a lot like what you're doing. 
You know, you as a technologist, you know how to build this stuff out to 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 work the way you want it to work. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a partner that that you are able to connect with and create some shared values um, that that I assume will propagate to to the companies that you invest in. Like, you know, you're looking for those points like, hey, these guys think like us or these these people are mm-hmm. are in line with with how we want to present ourselves to the world and the, and the good we want to do. Um, oh, wow. So, so it sounds like as much as, as much as sometimes I'm not sure how much branding work you've done, you've actually done quite a bit. And I like the way that you've done it because it's kind of happened organically in a way. Yeah. And actually we do, we actually do have a brand. If you, I don't know if you've been to our site recently, um, you know, our tagline is, you know, we invest in superheroes and we kind of lean in on the superhero thing, but a little bit of a childish, childish way. Um, and that was, I, I mean, all credits to Jessica, right? We, we had a lot of kind of conversations about our values and she walked away and came back and had this presentation and said, hey, I think this captures a lot of what we think of how we think of ourselves. And, you know, for me, you know, superheroes have, you know, often have kind of an odd background. They, they're unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, they care. They're very passionate about problems and they're, and they're risking a lot to save them. And, and it really captured our admiration for founders, which I think is the reason both Jessica and I are in this. Right? We're not in this because we want to get take something from founders. We, we we're in this because we get something from founders. We just we get energy from being around them and supporting them. Um, and I and I really liked that branding that uh, Jessica kind of landed on. Yeah. So it almost sounds like, in a way, your customers are your founders. Right. In a weird kind of way, like the way you've just described it makes me think of like the traditional hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in, in, in this model, the, the, the hero is the founder and, uh, and, and your firm is, is kind of the mentor. Right. So if you yeah. think of like almost any hero's journey, so like you got Luke, you got Obi-Wan, you know, you got, um, you know, the karate kid, you got Mr. Miyagi, you got, there's always Honestly, like this person. That, this, I wouldn't this even entity. go as far. I wouldn't even go as far. I mean, I hope we're being helpful enough to be a mentor, but like think philosophically, we don't even see ourselves as a mentor more so like a, a peer or, or somebody on the side, right? Like to Batman more like an Alfred. Okay. Then like Ra's al Ghul. Like we want to be there supportive. We have tools to help you, but we know that in the end for a company to be successful, it's going to be because of the founder, not because of us. Yeah. Yeah, I I really I really like what you what you guys are doing, and I think it's so smart. And uh, you know, and and you know, I've 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 you know been talking to you about companies that that you know to try to put on your radar, even though I know you're outbound. But uh, just because I think that they could benefit from from what you guys have to offer, and 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 again, how you look at the world, um, you know. What's the best way for, I mean, I know you do outbound, for, for people who want to know more about, you know, your philosophy, untapped, what you know, the status of untapped, the companies that you tend to invest in, someone who wants to like research, um, what's the best way to get the information? I mean, most recently I've been active on Twitter is, is kind of where I use as a information sharing. Um, so yeah, just uh, Twitter, Yohei Nakajima on Twitter is uh, where I share most of my stuff. Okay. And we're going to, um, listeners, we're going to have that in the show notes, um, along with a, a link to, to untapped and, and, uh, anything else we can, we can dig up on these guys. Um, yo, Hey, thank you so much for, uh, spending some time with us, um, this morning. And it is always a pleasure to, to talk to you and, uh, get your perspective on things. It's just, uh, this is a relationship that has been really valuable to me. 
And, uh, and I hope I, we were able to pass that on to our listeners. Yeah, no, thanks for having, having me, Rob. No, this was, this was fun. It's always, it's always such a pleasure to chat. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone, the world of uh, venture capital, it, it, it does at times really feel like a scary place. Um, and like anything else in life, there are, there are good people and, and there are not as good people. And, and I really just want to throw this out there. Yohei is definitely one of the good ones. Um, you know, he's a technologist. He's, I consider, a, a, a real disruptor. And, and I think he's kind of flipping this upside down. And we're really lucky to have him out there on our behalf. Uh, this is DTC Growth Hacking. It's presented by Field Test. My name's Rob McGray. Again, thanks to Yohei Nakajima of Untapped Capital. Um, if you like this content, you like the podcast, the best thing you can do is subscribe. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Uh, and, and we hope you enjoy your week. Uh, on behalf of everyone at Field Test, thank you. And uh, we'll see you in a week. This was a Field Test podcast.